I'm Nigel Bowles, in charge, as it were, of the main cabin here at the RAI. And as the RAI's director, it's my privilege to work in the John J. Lewis office here, so named to mark the generous gift by the Lewis family to the RAI at its inception. John J. Lewis served in the USAAF as a pilot in the Second World War, was in business, first in advertising, and then as director of international marketing with S.C. Johnson and he was later chairman of Combined Communications, a division of the media group which we know as Gannett. He was President Reagan's distinguished nominee as ambassador to the United Kingdom from 1981-83. When Ambassador Lewis announced his intention in 1983 to stand down from his post, President Reagan wrote that Ambassador Lewis was in no small part responsible for relations between the United Kingdom and the United States being adamantine. So they were, and so they must remain. And we thank the Lewis family, Jeff and Elizabeth, and Ambassador Lewis's widow, Josephine, who, alas, cannot be with us today, for their magnificent support in helping the RAI at its birth, and for helping make, indeed, entirely making, today's lecture <coughs> and dinner possible. The Rothermere American Institute is indebted to them for helping make the RAI the intellectual force that my colleagues have enabled it to become. So as I welcome Jeff and Elizabeth, so I welcome their guests and ours, Rona and Thomas Fairhead, Christopher and Catherine Rogers, Daniel and Catherine Bricken, and Frederick and Louise Moinkle. Thank you all for being with us, and thank you for your encouragement. An intellectual force the Rothermere American Institute certainly is, and I owe those of our guests new to the RAI a few words about what it is that is distinctive about what my colleagues do in this place. We offer thrilling spaces for intellectual activity. We provide a theatre, indeed, with a, th with a third of our annual plays taking place in the RAI's garden in July 2015, literally so, but also metaphorically so with the point points of meeting that the RAI affords. We're a place of encounter for all those academics and members of the public for whom understanding America is their business. There is a vast quantity of work going on here every day of every week. We are a marketplace of ideas and people bubbling with intellectual energy, all of us committed to doing better and more innovative work on and about America. It is a privilege to work with colleagues and students of the quality that we have in this place. We are America's home at Oxford, a place of welcome, a place of serious thought, a place of outstanding teaching, a place of discovery about what America is, and a place of research about how it has come to be what it is. We study America from perspectives that are inescapably external, because of where we are, but by free choice, sympathetic the United States. What the RAI and the Veer Harmsworth Library, this wonderful resource above us, do, no other institute in the world does, whether within or outside the United States. We combine intellectual commitment and capacity with a library unmatched outside America, and in fact unmatched by most within America, to study the United States in multiple contexts of history, hemisphere, literature, continent, politics, 
policy, security, markets, and Atlantic. And two of our public lectures this term are precisely on that final contextual theme, that of the Atlantic Ocean. Next week on Tuesday the 26th, we shall welcome Andrew O'Shaughnessy of the University of Virginia to give the third Sir John Eliot lecture on the British Empire and the outbreak of the American Revolution. We will be joined on that occasion by Sir John Eliot, whose intellectual energy and purpose was foundational to the RAI and whose support remains vital to our purpose. It's a particular pleasure to be able to welcome Sir John here to join us this afternoon. So today it is my privilege to welcome and introduce Lord Patton of Barnes to give the first of our public lectures this term on an Atlantic theme. Lord Patton's career has been one of devoted public service to his country, to his party, and to two other remarkable institutions, the BBC and this university. A former governor of Hong Kong, European commissioner, chairman of the Conservative Party, and most importantly for us, chancellor of the University of Oxford. He has navigated with skill and integrity some choppy waters in public and private sectors. He belongs to that tiny and distinguished group of persons of whom it is commonly and rightly said he was the best Prime Minister that the United Kingdom never had. For my part, I place on record my personal gratitude to him for his unfailing courtesy, his enthusiasm for the ideals and work of the RAI, his sage counsel, occasionally at times of difficulty, his kindness and encouragement. I'm very much in his debt. If there's a person better placed to give the inaugural Ambassador John J. Lewis lecture in Anglo-American relations, I cannot think of him or her. Ladies and gentlemen, members of the RAI community, please join me in welcoming to the Rothermere American Institute, the Chancellor of the University of Oxford, Lord Patton of Barnes. Nigel, thank you very much indeed for that uh, very kind uh, introduction. Uh, and I'd just like to add to your initial announcement and tell you that all those of you who think you're travelling to New York should know that your luggage has just landed in New Delhi. Um, it's a great honour to be uh, asked to give this uh, John J. Lewis lecture. Um, and I'd like to thank uh, Ambassador Lewis's lecture, uh, uh, family for their support of the lecture and their support of the uh, Rothermere America Institute. Um, it is, as Nigel rightly said, one of the most important institutes in the university uh, and ensures that we keep alive our very close relationship with the United States. I've just come from doing a commencement address uh, in America, in uh, Indiana at Notre Dame. Uh, pity the French didn't know how to pronounce that years ago. <laughs> um, and. Uh, uh, America has been an important, a very important uh, uh, part of my life, so thank you very much indeed for inviting me to give this lecture. And I recall uh, with uh, great enthusiasm occasions during Ambassador Lewis's uh, tenure as ambassador uh, uh, to the court of St. James, uh, evenings, receptions, and even one or two dinners in that uh, lovely um, social housing uh, that uh, the ambassador joined, enjoyed in, in North London. <coughs> the first time I gave a lecture about the relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom was 25 years ago. I went at the invitation of Professor Nelson Polesby 
to give a series of lectures at his university, Berkeley, one of them on this subject. Nelson was a firm friend of this country and of this university. Nelson would have grown rich if he had been paid a dollar every time anyone called him larger than life, which of course he was both literally and metaphorically. He was a great scholar, a magisterial expert on Congress and its arcane ways, and a student of transatlantic relations. He even tried, though it didn't succeed, to learn the rules of cricket, the better to understand British politics. As an academic, he graced what we call political science, partly because his approach questioned whether it was a science at all. While it had method, he was a good enough historian and student of the human condition to know that there was a limit to what all that docketing and enumeration could do to capture the essence of what happens in the world. He understood the importance of the length of Cleopatra's nose. To know how a democratic system worked, you needed to know about the people who were part of it, moved as they often are by impulses more profound than reason, to quote from Borges. And he knew too about what Churchill called the terrible ifs of history. Nelson was a great admirer of Douglas Hurd and strongly endorsed Douglas's view that Britain should seek to punch above its weight. He would have disagreed with any suggestion that we should do the opposite, downsizing our role in transatlantic and world affairs. I hope this is not an argument that gains traction, but much will depend on the decisions made in the next five years by the new Conservative government on Europe and on spending in areas like defence, foreign policy, the BBC World Service and higher education. Philip Larkin wrote a poem in 1969 called Homage to a Government. It encapsulated the point I've just made during the Wilson era. It's a patriotic poem that should appeal to any Tory. I guess that pessimism on this subject can reasonably be tempered to some extent by recognising the huge importance and influence of our capital's international role, by taking account too of the extent to which economics and demography could transform our position in Europe over the next two or three decades, pushing us back up the global league table. Nevertheless, this is not a subject that we can ignore. In the last few years, we've had a number of technicolour examples of the transatlantic relationship in action. There's been nothing quite as incendiary as the burning by the British of the White House, or the American ambassador in London, the father of a future president, telling President Roosevelt that Britain was bound to be defeated by the Nazis, an outcome that he appeared to rather favour. But there have recently been some notable highs and lows. Highs might include the military cooperation in the first Gulf War. Mr Blair would doubtless add to that Britain's support for and our share in President Bush's 2003 war of choice in Iraq. Others, however, would see this as a real low point, an occasion when the slavishness of an ally helped to do real damage to the stronger of the two partners, as well as to the overall relationship between them. There are a few other less significant lows. For example, the perception in the Clinton camp 
during the 1992 presidential campaign that the then Conservative government in Britain was trying to assist the Republican president's re-election prospects. No one could point to a similarly controversial intervention in reverse in the recent British general election campaign. The transatlantic relationship only featured a couple of times <clears throat> in the early stages of a campaign which ended so well for the Conservative Party and with so much egg rather satisfactorily on so many faces. True, before the campaign had quite begun, Mr Cameron went to the White House for a powwow with the President who evidently finds him an amiable and intelligent colleague, which he undoubtedly is. And true, Labour's economic spokesman arrived in Washington at the same time to launch transatlantic proposals on the economics of social inclusion with Larry Summers and other like-minded Democratic Party economists. And it's also true that there were a number of sighting shots by members of the administration about the levels of defence spending in the United Kingdom as well as in the other European NATO member states. Additionally, there was eyebrow raising in the White House about Britain's treasury-driven readiness to bend over backwards to accommodate China. More about that later. Other than that, foreign policy and security barely featured in our election campaign, though the question of Britain's continued membership of the European Union hung like a dark cloud over it, an issue which could in time dramatically reshape our relationship with the United States. Perhaps this reflects Britain's reduced importance in the world, a consequence in part of the rise of Asia and in part of the passage of the years in a once great imperial power that is now a medium-sized, though not insignificant, European country. In his beautifully written memoir, the former British minister and friend of Nelson's and mine, William Walgrave, noted that travelling around the US more than 40 years ago, he discovered, and I quote, that in most parts of the country, people had barely heard of the United Kingdom. And what of today? The clock ticks on. Mr Cameron matters less than Margaret Thatcher, who mattered less than Winston Churchill. Perhaps a consequence of national downsizing is that what is happening in the rest of the world plays a less important part in domestic democratic debate. But it is a bit odd that when the world appears to be going to hell in a handcart, we've been so preoccupied with our own navels and their NHS-tended well-being. Much of West Asia is embroiled in savage fighting with a huge humanitarian crisis in Syria. Religious extremism threatens disaster in that region on the scale of Europe's 17th century Thirty Years' War. The hopes of the Arab Spring have turned to ashes in several countries. Mr Putin challenges the fundamental principle on which European stability has been based for 50 years, namely that national frontiers should not be changed by force. Violence in the Sahel pushes refugees north towards the Mediterranean and a potentially deadly crossing towards the distant prospect of a haven in Europe. China appears to its neighbours to be flexing its muscles, causing growing anxiety from Tokyo to Delhi. Global governance is in tatters, with apparently a declining international ability 
to assemble the cooperative alliances required to overcome civil and military challenges. So what should Britain be doing, mindful of what we are today capable of doing, to assist the United States in confronting these tasks? And how, for our part, do we think the United States might continue to provide the leadership that no one else in the world can offer? On our side of the ocean, aware of the lack of symmetry between US and British power and influence, perhaps we should lay the phrase special relationship to rest with all its associated baggage. Admittedly, we have much cultural and political history in common. A language, sort of anyway, a commitment to the rule of law, democratic accountability, educational exchanges and collaboration, shared battlefield sacrifice, some triumphs of diplomacy, close economic ties. And there are other things, less often politically discussed, which join us at the hip. The trust that goes with intelligence cooperation and the sharing of nuclear secrets. But there are also echo, echoes of a very different past, attempts to resurrect it, and assumptions about the obligations of a natural friendship, which do not, in my view, do the US or, or us much good at all. For the first example, let me quote the most wounding thing said about Britain's geopolitical standing in the post-war period. The great American diplomat, Dean Acheson, in a speech at West Point in 1962, argued famously that, quote, Great Britain has lost an empire and has not yet found a role. Like all the most hurtful observations, the pain came, and to some extent still comes, from the fact that what Acheson said is largely true. Though the first British politician to use the term special relationship was the Labour Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald in 1930, at a time when relations between the countries were quite cool, the phrase is principally associated, in all its pomp, with Winston Churchill, son of an American mother. He used it first in 1944 and again in 1945, and it undoubtedly stemmed from the relative closeness of his personal relationship with President Roosevelt, sometimes exaggerated, as well as the wartime cooperation in theatres of war between the two allies against Germany and Japan. He spelt out what was to become the great magisterium of British foreign policy in his Sinews of Peace address in Fulton, Missouri in 1946. It was the speech in which Churchill correctly observed the descent of an iron curtain across the continent of Europe, cutting off what in effect became Russia's post-war empire from the West. Churchill's special relationship bound together not just the US and Britain, but the US and the English-speaking countries of the British Commonwealth. Of course, as Churchill accepted, Britain was geographically a part of the European continent. We enjoyed deep cultural and historical links with Europe. The rest of the continent was part of our long history, and we were part of its story. Our monarchs had once ruled much of France. Our present royal family was originally German. We had just fought two great wars triggered by European politics. 
After these grim and bloody struggles, we now had a huge interest in Europe coming together peacefully in a federal structure, a sort of European United States. But as Churchill said in his Zurich speech in 1946, we stood outside such political developments. We were with Europe, but not of it, linked but not comprised, interested and associated, but not absorbed. Thus was, thus was born Churchill's notion of Britain at the centre of three great interlocking global rings or circles, Europe, the Commonwealth and the Transatlantic Partnership, the Lord of the Rings. Just as France saw itself for years, and to some extent still does, through the prism of General de Gaulle's worldview, so Britain can never quite extricate itself from the vision of a great warrior leader, born in the Victorian era, who even in the days of decolonization and the disintegration of the British Empire, still saw Britain as a great ma maritime power, which he thought was still respected, admired and listened to in the concert of nations. Events should have taught us other lessons. The Suez campaign in 1956 proved to be our last disastrous imperial adventure, from which the US, not terribly politely, distanced itself. Uh, we tried uh, in vain to make a home outside the European community for ourselves in the European free, free trade area. Too late to influence the early creative impulses of the organisation that began to develop after the Messina Conference in 1955, we eventually went cap in hand to Paris and Brussels to join what became the European Union. Our empire turned into the British Commonwealth, in which, as one wag said, all the, ro all the roads led to Washington. <laughs> but a significant school in British politics and diplomacy continued to assert a virtual reality in which Semi-detached from Europe, the head of a multi-ethnic, multi-continental group of nations, we mattered more to America if we kept our distance from the alleged Federalists of Brussels. And however much Americans tell us otherwise, from the President down, we assert that we know best, indeed that we know much better than Washington does, the Britain that America would like to have as an ally if only Washington knew what was really in its own interest. So while politely going along from time to time with some of this, when it comes to dealing with an actual crisis in Europe, like Ukraine, the first telephone number the White House calls has a Berlin prefix. There's a story told about President Giscard d'Estaing arriving for a European Council meeting at Blenheim Palace and saying to Lord Carrington, as he surveyed the great hall in that building, what a very large house for a very small battle. It is perhaps an exaggeration. The Duke of Marlborough's success at Blenheim, after all, marked a turning point in the war of the Spanish succession. But it's a reminder of the value of trying occasionally to see oneself as others see you. So maybe however much American leaders, President Obama accepted, may covet a bust of Churchill in their office. I don't think many of them still see Britain as Roosevelt or Truman did for much of the time. 
My first point then is that the longevity, at least in London, of the idea of the special relationship has complicated our efforts to work out our national interest in a fast-changing world and, particular, and in particular our relationship with our European neighbours. My second criticism of the, long, of the longevity of this old caprice is that it can get us into serious trouble while not doing America much good, indeed rather the reverse. The best example of this is the relationship between Mr Blair and President Bush and in particular the Blair government's endorsement of and participation in the ill-starred invasion of Iraq. We await, we have been awaiting for some time, the report of the official British inquiry into the build-up to that war. The subterfuge, the exaggerations, the slate of hand, the legalities and illegalities, maybe even the careful mendacities. But even without that report, it's clear that a main reason for Britain's behaviour was Mr Blair's belief, in the words of one of his advisers, that the correct way of underpinning our most important foreign partnership wasn't, I quote, to hug them close. To be fair to Prime Minister Blair, he does also seem to have believed in the cause of bringing down Saddam Hussein. How much of the rest of the neoconservative agenda he also bought remains a little unclear. Did he, for instance, reckon that the road to peace in Jerusalem led through Baghdad? Hugging you close involved giving America a guarantee from before the hostilities began that whatever happened to the pre-war diplomacy, we would, we would be at the US side, guns blazing. It meant surrendering any influence to moderate the Cheney-Rumsfeld policies, since other voices in Washington would simply be drowned out with the argument that we in Britain were in the bag, a surrogate for much allegedly sensible, independent opinion beyond America's shores. In the event, when one reads some of the voluminous literature on that disastrous episode in unipolar excess, it's difficult to find much evidence, military, diplomatic or political, of Britain's influence on events. We were a badge of respectability to pin on the administration's coat. We could have been better friends. Our own, our own caution could have added to the weight of similar reservations expressed in Washington. As it was, America paid a very high price in blood, treasure and international esteem and influence for this egregious disaster. So did we, suffering diplomatic humiliation among other calamities. But hug them close went beyond Iraq. Let me give one further crucial example, Iran. Between 2003 and 2005, Iran's present president, Hassan Rouhani, was Iran's chief nuclear negotiator. The president at that time was the scholarly Mohammad Khatami, whose attempts to open up a dialogue with the West fell on very stony ground in Washington. Eventually, of course, he was replaced by the fiery populist Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. In Rouhani's talks, Iran offered three EU negotiating powers a deal on its nuclear program, which would have capped centrifuges at a low level, kept enrichment levels below weaponization, and converted enriched uranium into fuel rods that could not be used for military purposes. 
The British representative to the International Atomic, Agency, Atomic Energy Agency at the time, Ambassador Peter Jenkins, has made clear that the European negotiators were impressed by what was put on the table. But the Bush administration put pressure on London to veto the deal, arguing that more concessions could be squeezed out of the Iranians if the frighteners were put on them. We know what happened. The recent negotiations started and concluded way beyond what we could have achieved a decade ago. So much for close hugging. It was not always believed that hugging had to carry such a high price as Mr Blair paid. British Prime Minister Harold Wilson bobbed and weaved to escape President Johnson's embrace and his entreaties to commit forces to the Vietnam War. Moreover, much hugging came without any sacrifices, often involving little more than a patronising assumption that we could give wise advice as an old, now mostly retired, top dog to the world's new superpower, playing, as Harold, Macmill as Harold Macmillan suggested, Greek advisor to America's Rome, forgetting perhaps that the Greeks in question were usually slaves. <laughs> or to take a literary example, acting as Jeeves to the US Bertie Wooster. <laughs> Overall, we tried to play the role of Washington subaltern, transmitting, explaining, and where necessary, justifying Washington's purposes to the lesser breeds, like our European cousins. But a condition for playing this role is that when called upon to give advice, it's smart advice. Confucius noted that the worst thing that could happen to a ruler was to be given bad advice by courtiers who were simply telling him what they thought he would want to hear. What would I hope for from my old British ally across the pond if I were to be part of the American political establishment? First, as American politicians and businessmen keep telling us that we, that we should remain members of the European Union. Rather more than this, we should chuck, out, we should chuck our present semi-detached status and try to take a leading role in shaping the sort of European Union that, that could play a more confident and effective role in the world. This would not only be in the American interest, but above all, in our own. When Britain joined the European Union, a main motivation was the recognition that we would find it increasingly difficult to manage on our insular own in the world. With the loss of our empire and post-war economic problems, we had become more aware of the perils of being outside Europe's common market. In the early 1970s, when we rather reluctantly made these decisions, Britain as an independent trader was responsible for about 8% of the world's exports and imports. Today that figure has fallen to about 3.5%, a reflection of the rise of other economies, not least in Asia. It would be breathtakingly bold to argue that we were better placed to stand on our own today than we were 40 years ago. Within the EU, we're certainly big enough to matter in a world where the emerging markets are responsible for an ever larger share of global output. Membership of the EU has not inhibited our export performance in the world outside. We're, not, we're just not as good exporters as we should be. As a share of GDP, we export less to emerging markets than any other G7 country, 
and we don't compare very well with the Eurozone countries as an exporter to China, as I'll show a bit later. If we were not always grousing and pleading for special favours near the EU exit, we might be rather better in pushing a reform agenda that would suit Europe, suit us and suit our partners. We're not members of the Eurozone and we won't be in my view. But it will be to Britain's benefit for the Eurozone to be able to put its recent turbulence behind it and resume growth. As enthusiastic members of the single market, we'll benefit if we can persuade our European partners to do more to complete the market. It's sometimes suggested that we could continue to benefit from access to the single market without being members of the EU. The example of Norway is cited. But the truth is that if you want to enjoy the benefits of the single market, you have to pay the cost and accept the rules, like freedom of movement. There's surely nothing to be said for following the rules of the club without being able to set them, which is, for example, Norway's position. That seems to me a diminution, not an increase in sovereignty. Some advocates of British withdrawal from the EU suggest that Europe needs us so much that we could secure a deal pretty much on our own terms, outside the EU, but able to pick and choose which benefits to receive. Dream on. Why should we assume that Europe would bend over backwards to help a country that had just damaged the whole EU? They give, we take. Unlikely, I think. More to the point, the balance of economic advantage is heavily in our favour at the moment, not in that of the rest of the EU. Our exports to our European partners represent 14% of our GDP. The EU's exports to us stand at 2.5% of their GDP. Who needs whom more? With the election of Mr Cameron's government, the plan now is for a referendum in uh, 2017 on our membership after an, effort, after an effort to renegotiate its terms in ways yet to be spelt out, to be polite. I assume that the Cabinet understands that there is no conceivable outcome to this process which will satisfy a minority of Conservative MPs. They will never be content with anything less than departure from the European Union, even if the result of a referendum goes decisively against them, as I think it will. In the past, we have seen that the more they demand from, the conserv from Conservative leaders and the more they get, the more they come back to demand even more. The payment of Danegold doesn't have a very happy history. At the heart of the European Union, we could and should remove more of the barriers that have limited competitiveness and the growth of the single mar market, for example in services and e-commerce. We must also champion liberalisation of trade, pressing for the conclusion of the proposed transatlantic trade deal, which principally targets regulatory restrictions on the flow of commerce. This is, this is especially important for our efforts to create a more effective external affairs policy for Europe. Here again, a more coordinated and cohesive European effort should be welcome to the United States. We've been brought up hard against the inadequacies of present efforts to shape a common foreign and security policy by Mr. Putin's bullying and mendacious efforts 
to recreate a Russian sphere of influence in Eastern Europe, beginning with the annexation of the Crimea, the invasion of Eastern Ukraine, and the destabilization of the whole of that country, and of course, the growing pressure exerted on the Baltic states. Mr. Putin has been able in the past to use Europe's demand for Russian gas as a foreign policy weapon in a way that was not attempted by the old Soviet Union. So the first thing Europe needs is to ensure that the main Russian suppliers operate according to EU market rules, not varying price and delivery to support other policy goals. That now appears to be on the European Commission's agenda, which is welcome. We should also diversify our sources of supply and increase our ability to move energy around within the EU. But Russia's challenge to Europe's post-war assumptions about peace and stability is so fundamental that it has to be seen as the major foreign and security issue for us. I believe it's an existential issue for the European Union. How we resolve it will determine how Europe survives and develops. Modern Europe has been built on, uh, uh, on a belief on, in self-determination and rejection of any idea that frontiers can be changed by force. Europe has allowed Mr. Putin to play one EU member off against others, to divide us in order to try to reassert heavy-handed Russian influence in the east of the continent. He's broken one agreement after another. This is primarily a test for Europe, not the US, a test of our ability to stand up for what has enabled our continent to escape from a terrible half century and to combine capitalism, democracy, welfare and national liberties. Europeans are not looking for a way of starting a new Cold War, but we should be resolute in standing up to behaviour designed to recoup some of the losses incurred by Moscow when that period of growing hostility came to an end with the liberation of half Europe. One of the great triumphs of the European Union has been the stabilisation of our continent with the spread of democracy and markets. We mustn't allow that success to be undermined today by self-delusion and weakness. The amount we're prepared to spend to protect our own interests is a key element here. <coughs> The establishment of NATO in 1949 was in large part the result of European countries pressing the United States not to return to its own shores after the Second World War as it had after the first. The price Europe paid for this was the cooperative efforts with France and Germany at the heart of the whole enterprise to lay to rest the sort of aggressive xenophobic nationalism that had drawn the US twice in three decades into European civil wars. No wonder that the founding fathers of the European Union had far better receptions in Washington after the war than in London. The aim of NATO was described by its first Secretary General as to keep America in, Russia out and Germany down. The first two were accomplished very successfully and as for the third, well, Germany became a democratic leader and the economic motor of the new Europe. America paid for much of this success, carrying the heaviest burden for the cost of the defense of Europe, which European citizens have simply taken for granted. With the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, 
This has become more pronounced with European citizens increasingly to cash in the so-called peace dividend. In the last five years, European governments have cut defence spending by between 10 and 15 percent. The United States is now responsible for 20, 22 percent of the budget and its total defence spending is about three quarters of the total aggregate spending of all NATO members. Defence spending by Asian countries is now greater than in Europe, with the Chinese defence budget, for example, increasing by double-digit amounts for about two decades. A few years ago, a Danish politician advocated replacing his country's armed forces with a recorded message in Russian, we surrender. <laughs> it sometimes seems as though some NATO members may be taking that seriously. Belgium, whose capital city boasts the NATO hosts the NATO headquarters, has armed forces described by one presumably unfair critic as an unusually well-armed pension fund. <laughs> in, in an attempt to set a floor for national defence budgets, NATO members agreed in 2002 that they should spend at least 2% of GDP on their armed forces. This was below the average figure for NATO's European partners of about 2.3% in the 1990s. But today's average is 1.5%. French spending has recently fallen to 1.9% and Germany's is down to 1.3%. Of the large countries, only Britain is spending at about the target and this figure is set to fall. At last autumn's NATO summit, the British Prime Minister led the efforts with President Obama to get NATO members to commit themselves once again to 2%. Yet oddly, during the British election campaign, Mr Cameron's Conservatives refused to commit themselves to standing by this figure. Admittedly, the United Kingdom has the largest EU defence budget. Nevertheless, it's curious to press others to commit to a target, but to decline, but to, decline to accept it oneself. In 2010, the UK had the fourth largest defence budget in the world. Today that has fallen to sixth position. Even if the British government sticks to its promise to increase defence equipment spending, on existing plans, the defence budget will have fallen from 2.6% of GDP in 2010 to 1.75% by 2019. On his last visit to Europe as Defence Secretary, Robert Gates noted that there was likely to be dwindling enthusiasm in the United States for spending large numbers of dollars to help defend countries that were not prepared to do more to safeguard themselves. With a rampaging Russian president and with growing jihadist violence in the Middle East and Africa, this is surely a time for spending more on Europe's armed forces, not less. This should be the lead that Britain gives its partners. Alas, it's keeping its head well below the parapet. It's clear to me what sort of partner the US should want Britain to be. But what of the role that Britain should want the US to play? The first thing to be said, and it may be uncomfortable for some to hear the message, is that the United States is still the only country that matters everywhere on pretty well every issue. Without American leadership, or at least involvement, nothing much gets done. America cannot go home. 
American citizens may regard that as bad luck, but there it is. There is, I know, a long tradition in the United States of jeremiads about decline. And it's true that the global economic policies that the US above all championed after the Second World War, especially the opening up of markets, helped others to grow extraordinarily fast. In one 15-year period, China's exports to the United States increased by 1,600%. Thus the case for talking about the US emporium, not the US imperium. When other larger countries joined the world economy, their shares of global output inevitably increased. On my first visit to the United States in 1965 and the 1960s, the United States share of global income was about 37%. Today it's just over 20%. China will soon be, may already be, the largest economy in the world, as it has been for 18 out of the last 20 centuries. Does that mean that the US is in decline? The third world has turned into what we now call emerging markets within the broadly capitalist free trading regime put in place in the post-war period. In terms of wealth per head, none of the emerging markets, certainly not China, is going to rival the United States. China may be able, indeed it is already able, as are others, to shake the existing world order, but it cannot create a new one. Indeed, even in combination, the emerging markets are better able to stop things happening than to create a new reality. This is partly because of the divergence of their agendas. Look at what happens in trade talks. They're all over the place. Needless to say, the United States has to work harder to put together like-minded coalitions and has to avoid as well appearing to resent the, uh, the rise of other countries, notably China. Existing international financial and economic institutions should be adjusted to take account of changes in relative economic strength. In addition, the US has to prevent legitimate concerns about China's behavior over security issues in its region, luring it and the rest of us into what is called the Thucydides trap, so-called because of that historian's uh, book about the war between Sparta and Athens, a big status quo power slapping down a perceived rival. China has legitimate national interests, some of which may be reasonable, but we shouldn't accept them without debate, reasonable or not, allowing China to dominate their region or to overwhelm the rules of civilized order which have ensured peace for some time in Asia. This is not an easy hand for the US to play, and America's allies should cut Washington some slack in coping with a great country whose quantitative impact on global affairs far exceeds its qualitative impact. Frankly, returning to the phrase I used earlier, China today punches below its weight. One recent tremor in the US-UK relationship was the British decision to join the China-based Asia Infra Infrastructure Investment Bank. This clearly took the US by surprise not the sort of thing that friends usually do to one another. But in a sense, it indicated problems on both sides of the Atlantic. First, the US with its Western friends should have worked harder, as I've just suggested, 
to reform the Bretton Woods institutions so that they give a bigger say to emerging markets, especially, to, especially China. Second, the American administration, in its statement on the British decision to join the bank, referred, and I quote, to a trend towards constant accommodation of China. British policy on China is driven by the Treasury, which sees foreign policy almost entirely in terms of mercantilism. So, so as far as the Treasury is concerned, the clapped out and mistaken view holds sway that you can only do business with China if you do so on their political terms. There is no real evidence for this. The Chinese, by and large, do business on the same basis as everyone else. Even after the British PM quite properly saw the Dalai Lama and London as a result was excoriated by Beijing, trade grew modestly. If you look at the recent figures, in 2013 we exported 10 billion of goods to China, dollars that is, against 73 billion for Germany and 29 billion for France. The UK trade deficit with China that year was 32 billion to France's 10 billion and Germany's 1 billion. Britain sells twice as much to Ireland as to China. We don't, we don't sell more to China, not because of our kowtows over Hong but not because our kowtows over Hong Kong are insufficiently low, but because we don't make enough things that China wants to buy. It often seems to America's friends that the excessively partisan nature of political debate and governance in the US makes it more difficult for America to negotiate the journey from unipolar arrogance to more inclusive leadership of cooperative ventures. Add the vilification of consensus building, building in some parts of the political establishment to the way in which America's revered 18th century constitution appears to have bequeathed more checks than balances, and it's no surprise that some question, some question remains as to whether the democratic system is really the best way to govern a country and cope with its domestic problems and international challenges. Example. Democrats are in favour of regional and global institutions, but dislike free trade. Republicans favour free trade, but hate the institutions and international agreements needed to underpin them. <clears throat> when Republicans still appear to share Mr Cheney's and Ambassador Bolton's worldview, many Republicans still appear to share that worldview, denying the lessons of Iraq and rejecting the, no the notion that America should accept that the rules that America helped to create for others should apply as well to US behaviour. <clears throat> this has done immense damage to the US standing in the world. Many American politicians as well appear to be happy to give a green light whatever Mr Netanyahu wishes to do, regardless of its likely impact on Palestinian and Israeli security, or even that of the rest of the world. <clears throat> These are not insurmountable obstacles, as President Obama seems to have been attempting to demonstrate over trade and Iran. It's just a pity that they make the, that they make the conduct of foreign policy and the acceptance of the burdens of global, global leadership so much more onerous. <clears throat> America needs a UN system that works better. It needs an international rule book that is more likely to be followed if Washington follows it too. It needs partners committed to the rule of law, 
pluralism, accountability, free trade, and the understanding that so many problems that challenge nation states today can only be tackled successfully by working across borders and by accepting limits on that slippery old concept, national sovereignty. This opens up a much wider debate, which should, I think, be at the heart of the discussions between the United States and America's transatlantic allies in Britain and the rest of the European Union. What do we believe in the democracies of the West is the relationship between foreign policy and human rights? <clears throat> should it be a Western objective to spread democracy? Can it ever be done effectively, let alone ethically, by force? What are the limits on national sovereignty? And do we still believe, do we still buy into the principle of the responsibility to protect? Should America accept or simply try to share the responsibility for standing up to threats that others prefer to ignore? How much should the United States allow its own diplomatic, economic, military and political weight shape the answers to these threats ahead of or regardless of the opinions and sensitivities of others? Like most of America's friends, I'm not uncritical of a country that I love, a country that we all need. And there's the rub. Maybe we've reached one of those moments in the history of our planet accompanying a shift in economic power, a moment when everything spins off in a new direction, certainty shredded, direction as yet unknown, bloody Darwinian battlefield, or a new understanding of how to muddle along more or less amiably together. If that is so, and even if nothing so dramatic lies ahead, I'm certain in my own mind that we shall need America's hand on the wheel as often as possible. It's a lot to ask, but I'm afraid it goes with the territory. America can't disown her duty. There's only one superpower, and that is the United States. The United States with, I hope, more intelligent and dependable help from the United Kingdom. <laughs>